We're going to start part two of the lecture for the week of October 20th. And this uh, part of the lecture specifically deals with the development of racism in the United States and how it affects both African American and Native American people. Racism is um, a subject that is particularly tied to the ways in which the United States tried to expand its borders by dealing with Indian peoples um, in the 1780s and 1790s. And it also um, complicates some of the fundamental assumptions of the American Revolution and the ways the American Revolution was fought and the reasons for um, the establishment of the United States. So for the purposes of this class, we'll define racism as a system of thought that links human difference to inherent biological traits and then ranks those traits along a spectrum from superior to inferior traits. So if you've heard that race is a social construction, not a biological one, basically that means that racial categories and racism have to do with three perceptions perception being different from evidenced reality. So racial categories and racism have to do with three perceptions. First is the perception that there are fundamental biological differences between humans. Uh, second, there's the perception that these differences cannot be altered. And third, the perception that these unalterable differences create hierarchies of people according to certain ethnocentric value systems. So, for example, if you were a Native person living in 1790 in the Ohio Valley, you might have felt that so-called white people and white American culture were distinctly inferior to yours, and you were willing to therefore do whatever you could to destroy that culture and its presence within your own culture. Um, those types of attitudes comprise racism, and it's that type of racism that we are most familiar with today in America. Um, however, that type of racism was in under definition. It was in the process of being defined at this period around the American Revolution. Not all Ohio Valley warriors fought because they believed that white Americans were somehow fundamentally culturally inferior. Um, and the idea of race was not simply a biological reality, um, but was something much more complicated revolving around cultural attitudes and most especially the idea that um, people could change and essentially um, change their identities as they changed their cultures. This is the kind of Enlightenment philosophy that informed Henry Knox's attitudes about um, the expansion with honor policy that we talked about in the first part of this lecture. Now, in the 17th and 18th centuries, during the time leading up to the formation of the United States, attitudes about human biology were very different than what they are now. Human believed, he, Europeans believed that differences between humans were real, but that they were not linked to biology. 
The Europeans thought that they were superior because they believed their culture was superior. Indians also felt that their culture and societies were superior to Europeans. So ethnocentricity was clearly operating there, but most people thought that humans could cross cultural boundaries if they had the right education and social opportunities. Very few of these ideas were linked to uh, things like skin color, for example. In the early 18th century, skin color differences were rarely mentioned in documents that depicted diplomatic encounters between Indians and whites. But by the mid-18th century, or right around the Seven Years' War, it was common to refer to red or white or black people in some of these documents. In the early period, in the early 18th century, it was an accepted ritual of negotiation and adoption that Europeans and Indians would exchange clothes at um, diplomatic uh, ceremonies or, or negotiating sessions. Exchanging clothes was like transforming into a new identity when one side became united with the other side. This whole idea of color attached to biology was something um, that southeastern Indians in particular had to adjust to. So their early references to skin color had echoes in their sacred colors, sacred colors for southeastern Indians being red, white, black, and blue. White was the color of peace and friendship and purity, while red was the color of war. Um, southeastern Indians in the 18th century, for example, may have defined themselves as red in opposition to people who introduced themselves as white. Red, of course, um, being, especially as the 18th century wore on, red war being one of the main political and diplomatic interests of native peoples. Now, it's entirely unclear from these diplomatic documents whether Indians meant to use these terms to refer to themselves as biologically or innately different from Europeans, but other evidence indicates that Indians did observe physical differences and categorize people accordingly. Indians also used references to skin color in a racist way, calling Europeans sometimes white nothings or ugly white people or white dunghill fowls, um, referring to a kind of certain kind of bird that was white. These racist epithets are meant were meant to link ancestry and biology with moral values, with ethnocentric judgments of moral values and behaviors, um, and therefore denigrate the people that these epithets were applied to. So one has to remember here what's at stake politically in these negotiations from which historians are drawing these descriptions of skin color. Indian politicians were determined to preserve their land base, their trade, and their political autonomy, which we've talked about before, and they crafted their identities in this context. In a diplomatic context, skin color was seen as a divide between Europeans and native people that had to be overcome through rituals like exchanging clothing and through language that bonded Indians and Europeans together in the same kind of political and physical body.
So for the first, for example, the first negotiations between the Conestoga Indians and colonist William Penn in Pennsylvania in 1701 resulted in a declaration that Indians and English, quote, shall forever hereafter be as one head and one heart and live in true friendship and amity as one people. Now, these were the sentiments that were considered important before and to a certain extent during the American Revolution, but things changed quite a bit several de decades later. Initially, both Europeans and Indians knew that physiological differences were not clear-cut and would not stand up to examination, but as their relations deteriorated through the 1780s and 1790s, Skin color provided a powerful explanation and a natural impediment for why Europeans and Indians constituted separate peoples and could not get along. Now, Indians' exclusion from citizenship in the United States, then, was due to a different logic than that applied to African American slaves. Skin color or degree of dependency was not immediately the issue, but rather Indians and Europeans both recognized Indian status as citizens of independent nations as part of a different body politic. This separate political status acquired a racial veneer as relations between Europeans and Indians and later between Americans and Indians deteriorated past the point of mutual accommodation. In the meantime, though, nobody was convinced that these deteriorating relationships were totally due to biological difference or inherent difference that couldn't be overcome, and adoption rituals continued in both social and diplomatic settings between Europeans and American Indians. Now, as we saw with uh, Powhatan trying to ad essentially adopt John Smith as and Jamestown in 1607, Indians believed that members of one political group could become members of another political group through adoption, that people were not forever separated by biological differences. Europeans and European Americans um, adapted to these ideas and participated in them eager eagerly. Um, at the 1785 Treaty of Hopewell, for example, Choctaw women embraced the American negotiators one by one, conveying a kind of temporary family tie that made negotiations possible. European negotiators would also receive new names that accorded them some kind of standing within the native communities they were negotiating with. So, for example, back before the American Revolution, um, a British official named John Stewart was adopted by the Cherokees and given a Cherokee name that translated as Bushy Head. He was Scottish, his hair was very bushy, so Cherokees gave him a Cherokee name that meant Bushy Head. And his descendants in the Cherokee Nation still use this name today. So even as late as 1785 and probably later, Indians and Europeans still believed that a biological difference or cultural difference did not prevent people from carrying on peaceful political negotiations. Now, when it came to African Americans, Europeans had a rather different set of ideas about family and adoption and how that should govern society and influence identity. 
when it came to determining the status of African Americans as slaves, Europeans believed that a matrilineal kinship system When it came time to determine the status of African Americans as slaves, Europeans came up with various ways to ensure that despite the racial composition or, or biological ancestry of African Americans that they retained, or their family alliances, that these people retained their status of slaves. So laws in slaveholding states dictated that if one's mother was a slave, then the child was also a slave, and slave owners were able to easily increase their property holdings this way by having sex with enslaved women. They could grow wealthier by having children with these women that without having to spend more money in slaves. Um, that way, family alliance did not mean that African Americans could become closer could have closer political or citizenship ties to the American nation, whereas um, most American officials believed, at least at first, that through adoption and family ties, Native people could develop closer citizenship relationships with the United States. While European-American slave owners determined that African-American women were used, could be used to enhance their property status, it was not particularly possible for European-American men to use Native women in the same way. When European men na married Native women, they gained some short-term advantages in being able to conduct trade relations or diplomatic relations with Native nations, but typically they found that within Native societies, Native women still controlled land use and property distribution even after they married. So marriage did not give men, whether European or Native, any more power in a Native society. And natives, Native women's roles in their economies that therefore limited European men's flexibility in acquiring property and increasing their wealth by marrying into or, or having sexual relationships with Native American women. This was quite a different circumstance than most European men encountered with enslaved African American women. Now, regardless, European men still brought ethnocentric assumptions to their relationships with Native women, and those were assumptions about proper racial, cultural, and gender superiority. Men typically, European men typically regarded their own Christian culture and their patterns of land use as superior to that of Indians, and they thought their own treatment of women was evidence of that superiority. Of course, in reality, European men believed that they were superior to all women, whether European or native or African, um, and because they believed that women of any background were abject dependents to men, European men were very satisfied by their treatment of European women, and they thought, accordingly, that women of other cultures should subject themselves to the same treatment. Now, European women had no standing or property of their own once they became married and while they were living in a father's household, so the only standing or property was that 
of their husbands. Um, Accordingly, European men believed that beating their wives was a necessary expression of male power and superiority over women, and they typically rejected or were offended by the type of power that Native women expressed in their own societies. A trader, an American trader named James Adair, A-D-A-I-R, at one point called Cherokee society a, quote, wanton female government as a way of criticizing uh, Cherokee society and calling it savage and inferior to that of the United States and Britain. So, nevertheless, Native governments often successfully disciplined European men who got out of line by trying to seize control of their wives' property or mistreat Native women or their children. Another difference between European and Native conceptions of of family relationships was that most Europeans believed that the child's father had something to do with the child's identity, with his ethnicity or his nationality. According to the kinship systems, though, of Native American communities, the father received no consideration in the child's identity. It was only the mother's identity who mattered to the child's identity. So if a mother was was a member of a tribal community, the child was also a member of that community. The father's identity did not matter to the identity of the child. Um, Englishmen, though, rejected this idea and... uh, Found, that, found it difficult to um, reconcile themselves to the kind of authority that Native women had over the identity of the children that they had with Native men. I'm sorry, with non-Indian men. Now, within Native nations, uh, women were accustomed to the idea that far- fathers had no right to exercise any authority over their children um, because... In native kinship terms, the fathers had no sort of familial blood relationship to those children. This is a little hard to explain, but essentially in native kinship systems, a child was a child's mother and a child's mother's mother's family were the blood relatives of that child. That's how that child knew what family he or she belonged to by who its mother was and who its mother's mother's uh, family members were. The child had a father, acknowledged that father, but also did not acknowledge any particular blood relationship to that father. So the father didn't really have any right to control how the child was raised um, or exercise much authority over that child because they didn't have any real blood relationship to them, according to the native kinship systems that prevailed in the territory that the United States was trying to claim. Now, throughout the 18th century, as tribes were negotiating consistently with Europeans and then with Americans, the number of mixed-race children increased dramatically in Native communities, children with Native mothers and European fathers. Um, Now, in most of these cases, most European men had relatively peripheral roles in their Indian children's lives, but... um, some some native leaders and some uh, European fathers within, living within native societies believed that 
their children ought to those children ought to know something of their father's culture or their expectations and assumptions now sometimes european men ran into real conflicts with native women over this expectation for example benjamin hawkins who was in charge of implementing henry knox's expansion with honor policy among the creek indians entered into negotiations with a creek woman and her daughter for the daughter's hand in marriage Hawkins had observed the lack of control men had over their children in Creek society, and he put some conditions on the marriage. He told the girl's mother that if he had a child with her, that, quote, I shall expect it to be mine, that I may clothe it and bring it up as I please, end quote. Furthermore, he expected the woman's children from the previous marriage, from her previous marriage to be his. He wrote that, quote, the wife must consent that I shall clothe them, feed them, and bring them up as I please, and no one of her family shall oppose me doing so, end quote. Well, the girl's mother refused these conditions completely, and Hawkins was not able to marry. The negotiations for his marriage ended. Now, while mixed-race children seemed evident and obvious to Europeans, for Creeks and other tribes um, in the southeast that suffered removal, the idea of bicultural or mixed-race children did not totally exist or did not completely exist on its own. Um, Indians did not draw a link between culture and racial ancestry like British, like the British and some Americans assumed uh, such a link. However, even some Native women agreed that after relations between tribes and the United States began deteriorating under the expansion with honor policy, um, that familiarity with American customs and language would be an important requirement for leadership so long as the leaders who acquired that familiarity also maintained a steadfast resolve against further encroachments by American settlers. So some of these mixed-race children that we'll learn more about as we learn about removal um, were very much working with um, Native American assumptions about political priorities and cultural priorities while using tools brought typically to them by their fathers for understanding American customs and language. Um, so that they could more successfully negotiate for the priorities that their Native communities held. Now, Native nations practiced considerable innovation in dealing with these types of issues around um, cultural change and political change, including developing centralized governments that would help Indians resist the pressure to sell their lands and move west of the Mississippi. I had mentioned earlier that as it became clear that the expansion of on, expansion with honor policy was not working, that calls for removal increased, and Thomas Jefferson was the first person to call for Indian removal after the 1804 Louisiana Purchase. He justified this purchase as uh, acquiring territory where, where Indians could move, uh, Indians who didn't want to assimilate, rather, could move, and serious divisions emerged within tribal communities as these political developments were worked out. People divided over how 
cultural change should happen and the speed with which it should happen. The prominence of Indian descendants of white men in these conflicts tempted European-American observers to characterize the divisions within tribal communities in terms of race, uh, dividing Indian communities up between so-called mixed bloods, who they believed advocated removal or assimilation, and so-called full bloods, who resisted uh, the idea of removal or assimilation. Now, this particular observation is is flawed by European ethnocentric assumptions about race and the tie between race and culture. Native Americans did not necessarily share those assumptions, and so to characterize political divisions as between mixed bloods and full bloods is something that's not necessarily historically accurate. Europeans in the early 19th century were increasingly convinced that culture accompanied ancestry and that cultural traits were as as immutable, as unchangeable as biological traits were. And they also believed that a mixed-race child would have natural affiliations with his European cultural heritage. Now let me go back to clarify that a native and European mixed race child would have natural affiliations with his European cultural heritage. They did not believe that about native, I'm sorry, about European and African mixed race children. Because of the status of African American women as property, it never benefited European Americans to view mixed race children as having any kind of European um, affinity. Rather, the insistence was that any child born of a European and a male and a woman of who was a slave of African descent would retain an identity and an affiliation with that slave status, and therefore with also an African ancestry. Southeastern Indian communities had no cultural concept of this relationship between cultural culture and race. As that Creek woman told Benjamin Hawkins, she wouldn't have her grandchildren raised by their father, that the children were Creeks no matter who their father was. And in fact, mixed-blood and full-blood Indians allied with both sides of the political divide over Indian removal. Whites and African Americans even joined in the cause of the resistors. While men of European ancestry often had positions of leadership in these political negotiations, these men actually acquired their influence through traditional family systems based on the mother's line in Indian communities. So so-called mixed-blood chiefs that predominated in the Creek tribe, the Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaws, and Seminoles had traditional claims on their positions. They were not simply chiefs because their fathers were of European background, but they were chiefs because their mother's families uh, had traditionally held positions of political authority. So Native people persisted um, in perpetuating their traditional ideas about identity and community affiliation, despite Americans who claimed that mixed blood or full blood divisions was what dominated uh, the political negotiations around removal.
I explained this history of racial formation in Native American societies and adaptation to European ideas about race in order to help you more critically evaluate the readings and films that are about removal and help you think concretely about um, how race and racial ancestry played a role in the removal of Indians from the southeastern United States. Now, removal is important to U.S. history because without removal, we would not have the South. We would not have any states in the South except for those on the eastern Atlantic coast. Um, we would not have had any economic growth in the South. We would not have any slavery in the South. We would not have had a civil war if Indians had not been successfully removed from that territory. So the fact of Indian removal is important to U.S. history, but it's also important for what it meant um, ideologically to the formation of the United States ideals of uh, freedom and democracy and unity. Now, the American and French revolutions, to take a step back, the American and French revolutions represented the repudiation of the monarchy, of top-down government. The, the idea, the fundamental political ideal developed in each of these revolutions was that it was the individual citizen who was sovereign, not the king. Um, and instead, the United States justified its sovereignty based on the unity of the individuals that it governed. So if an individual is sovereign, then a government was only legitimate because those individuals unified in support of that government. Now, race and racism emerged in this question of how America would become unified. Um, people believed that unity could be gained through race or language, customs or religion, as well as by having a political majority. Um, race, language, customs, religion became important to informing that political majority, especially in the context of the type of immigration that the United States was experiencing early on after the American Revolution. The advertisement we saw in class that said no Irish need apply is a good example of how at first the Irish were excluded from this idea of what would create a unified American citizenry, and people did not desire to um, have them gain any kind of economic foothold in this society because people believed they could never be incorporated into the American uh, political body. These same ideas influenced attitudes about Indians and um, coming calls emerging calls for removal as people began to believe that unity was political unity was based on racial ancestry language customs etc the they also continued uh, began to believe that it was impossible for indians to have anything in common racially or linguistically or culturally with um european americans and so over the next century, American culture became equated with the kind of white culture, and the native culture, the African American culture that existed here, was essentially, and for many, um, essentially excluded from that idea of what American meant. It took the fighting of the Civil War and 
the 14th and 15th Amendments to increase the um, ability of African Americans in particular, but also Native Americans and people of other ethnicities to belong to the United States and um, become subject to or be able to take advantage of the privileges uh, embedded in the U.S. Constitution and its other founding documents. Now, I want to finish by making the point that these policies about race were not enshrined just because Americans were evil or because they felt like being racists. They were enshrined in order to achieve specific political and economic interests. The example of the Irish is probably the best one. Today, Irish people are generally considered white. Irish people generally don't question the access that they have to the fundamental rights and freedoms of American society. But at one time, the Irish were not allowed to access those fundamental rights and freedoms because the presence of the Irish contradicted the specific political and economic interests of a certain group of Americans. Take that example and um, extend it to the history of Indian people and African people also on this continent. Um, now, eventually, attitudes about the racial identity of African Americans were legalized because African Americans were an indispensable source of labor to work the land. After the Civil War and the end of slavery, people began to view African Americans, of course, as absolutely nece a necessary component of the labor force. And so, despite their um, history as slaves and their history is politically excluded from the American from American society. Um, they were allowed in essentially through the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments, and their skin color, their community identities, their cultural identities as African Americans, took much much longer to become embraced by a larger portion of the of American society. So. African Americans were made citizens of the United States because their labor was indispensable to work the land, but the land itself came from Native people who owned it and inhabited it. And once it became clear in the wake of the expansion of with honor policy that they were not going to give it up without serious bloodshed on both sides, the United States had to change and codify racial attitudes that characterized Indians as biologically, not just culturally, inferior. It was those attitudes that led to the justification of removal, of taking Indians uh, away from land that they had inhabited and owned in the southeast and moving them to Indian territory out west. <laughs>